The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. What's good, everybody, and welcome to Sports Talk New York here on Long Island's WGBB. I'm Andy Sugov. I'll be your host tonight on this Sunday evening, October 2nd, 2022, in Merrick, New York. Great place to be on a Sunday. On the show tonight, we've got Antoine Saley from the New York Daily News talking some Jets. We have Sherry Ross at the bottom of the hour to discuss the Devils and some other stuff. Before we begin, I just want to remind everyone that you can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You can also visit our website at WGBBSportsTalk.com, where you can listen to all our past shows and check out any upcoming show information. And if you don't already, we invite you to subscribe to the podcast WGBB Sports Talk New York on iTunes, Spotify, or basically anywhere you get your podcasts. Now that we got that going, we had a good day here in New York. The New York Jets are 2-2 two and two and not in last place for the first time in what seems like forever. And here to discuss that with me from the New York Daily News, fresh from Pittsburgh, Antoine Saley. Antoine, thank you for taking the time tonight. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, Antoine. How's everything with you? I'm doing all right. That's what I like to hear. So you're you're new to the Jets beat, and I, I don't know what, what if anything, your predecessor at the Daily News, DJ Enemy, told you about Jets fans, but we, we are a fun bunch, and I, I'm sure you've already begun to see that as the season's gone on. Well, I covered the Dolphins for years, for like seven, eight years, so I know uh, how the Jets fans are uh, kind of indirectly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty aware of how all the fans are in the uh, AFC. So you're, you're in Pittsburgh today for Zach Wilson's first start, and after the third quarter where things kind of seemed to kind of get away from them, they buckled down to get this 24-20 win in a place where it – even if the Steelers aren't good, it's a hard place to win at Acrisure Field. Wilson comes back with an 18-36, 252-yard touchdown, two-interception day. What did you see from him and the team in general going into today? Well, I mean, I think you saw, like, two different things. Uh, well, one, I think the first three quarters, it seemed like he was really struggling and was very mediocre there. But that was the fourth quarter, I mean, he started to turn it on. He was 10 for 12 and, you know, threw the touchdown pass to Corey Davis, which uh, got them right back in the game. And then uh, they ended up driving, you know, left of the field after that interception by Michael Carter. And, of course, Brees Hall ended up knocking it in for the game-winning touchdown. So, yeah, you saw a lot of resilience there. I mean, it wasn't pretty at times. I mean, we obviously talk about a guy that's missed, like, nearly two months of game action due to a uh, bone bruise and knee injury. But, you know, you have to be encouraged of what he's what you saw later on in the game, not necessarily what you saw early in the game, but how they persevered and was still able to get the victory. And with, with that, so you kind of saw him like shaking the rust off as the game progressed. Say that again. So as the game kind of went on, you you would see that you kind of saw the rust shaking off of him, like as you said, he hadn't been in game action since yeah. early August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you kind of saw it in that fourth quarter where. You know, he was much better. Um, you know, accuracy was a little bit better. I feel like he calmed down a little bit there, whereas early in the game. And also, too, I mean, the offensive line, the Jets really didn't do him any favors. And also, uh, the, some of the drop passes by receivers there also hurt him as well. Speaking of the offensive line, has there been any updates on 
right tackle Max Mitchell, who has been very impressive in the beginning, the early parts of the season. I don't think a lot of people expected a lot from him as a rookie, and he's really come on as a, a nice surprise for people. Uh, none at the moment, not, not after the game. So I, I imagine we'll find something out maybe tomorrow. Uh, we know it was his knee injury, which is not necessarily a good thing. Obviously, they had to bring the card out for him. And we're talking about the Jets, who already has their offensive line has already been decimated, where, you know, you have George Fano on IR. Dwayne Brown is just about to come off IR starting tomorrow. So, uh, that'll help a little bit as well. So it's just kind of been like a musical chairs fit for them. So hopefully for their sake, Max Mitchell is not out a long time. If so, then, you know, it's going to be more, you know, trying to move people in position. We're talking with Antoine Staley from the New York Daily News. One of the big things I saw today as I was watching, saw a lot of costly drops, including ones that did lead to interceptions. Like, I'm, like, I'm looking at Tyler Conklin and I'm seeing him drop passes that that should be caught and uh, look I'm not an I'm not an NFL player I like I know I'm not catching those passes but is that is that a big area of concern that that passes are getting dropped at such a frequency with this team yeah I think I mentioned that earlier I mean just, that's really been the story of the last, the first four weeks of the season it's been a lot of mistakes and miscues and I think drops have been part of it penalties at uh in opportune times was also some of them we saw the Carl Lawson roughing the passer penalty which end up setting up a 59-yard field goal at the end of the half, which, you know, looking back on it, that could have potentially hurt the Jets later on. Obviously, they ended up still winning the game. So, you know, I don't know if a lot of people will talk about that, but they definitely ended up hurting them, at least at the moment, there heading into halftime. So, yeah, it's been, you know, miscues and, you know, mistakes have hurt this team throughout the course of the season. And you just have to hope if you're a Jets fan or, you know, or a team, or somebody on the team, coaches or players, this will be start. This these type of things will start to get corrected. And uh, what did Lawson have anything to say about that roughing the pass here after the game? Um, I mean, he just said it was just really a mistake, and you know, something he just has to you know clean up, and something he can't do, basically. But I, I will, I will say for the defense, so they did look better today than they have early part of the season. Had four interceptions, three sacks. Held the Steelers at 297 total yards. Uh, is this a good statement game for defensive coordinator Jeff Ulbrich, who kind of had a bit of a rough week after the quote about Quinn Williams got a little bit taken out of context? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a rough week in general. I think for just the Jets in general, I mean, you know, for all, you know, aspects, Quinn Williams, which I think had a, I think he had another good game there, uh, obviously. You know, people remember the blow up with uh, Aaron Cotton, the defensive line coach, last week there. But I felt like Quentin played his best football after that, and then I think that kind of continued later on today too, as well against the Steelers. And yeah, I mean, it, it was like again, it wasn't always pretty, but you know, to be able to get four interceptions and you know, be able to kind of you know confuse Mitch Trubisky or also Kenny Pickett when he was in there, I definitely think is a step in the right direction. We'll see if uh, they can try to build from that, but. You know, to get four turnovers like that, I definitely think it was pretty big. We were talking with Antoine Staley. Uh, when, when Pickett came in, what kind of adjustments did you see the coaching staff make to try to mask what they were doing against a rookie quarterback, seeing his first in-game action in the regular season? Well, really nothing at first. I mean, because it seemed like he, like the Steelers had like some momentum going, and uh, it seemed like the game switched when Pickett came to, kind of get in the game, and you know the energy just led to the Steelers' uh, direction, and the fans 
fans got into it, and, you know, you could obviously see that that gave them a bit of a jolt of momentum. I feel like the fourth quarter they were kind of able to, you know, do some things there, just kind of sit back and, you know, wait, confuse them a little bit, get in some zone coverages and, you know, be able to uh, pick them off a couple of times. But, yeah, I think at first, I mean, I definitely think they said they were uh, ready for possible quarterback change, but I'm not necessarily sure they were uh, to an extent or ready for what was coming there. But it seemed like the Kenny Pickett's connection, really to George Pickens, was pretty big in the third quarter. And I, I, as I was watching, I kind of, and I saw him run that first touchdown, and I kind of got myself flashbacks to that 2018 Thursday night game against Cleveland when a rookie came into the game in the second half and just completely changed the tide of a game the Jets were winning to lead their team to victory, and that was Baker Mayfield. I, I had, I had very similar feelings to that watching Pickett come in here. So it was definitely good to see that they were able to buckle down in the fourth quarter and not have that happen again. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think they persevered from I think the defense played really well, um, especially uh, when things kind of got out of hand. I think a lot of people probably left them for dead uh, in that fourth quarter when they were down double digits. But, you know, to be able to come back like that, and, you know, especially when you have a guy that's starting his first game of the season, I definitely think it's, you know, could be could potentially be a momentum booster for this team moving forward. But we'll see. We thought the Browns game might be do the same thing, and, you know, they kind of laid a dud against the Cincinnati Bengals the next week. So we'll have to wait and see what happens next week against the Dolphins. Yeah, and uh, what, one player I do want to highlight here is Marcus Joyner. He's, he's taken a lot of flack this season for missing assignments and I think had, had a very strong game today with his two interceptions. You think this could be a turning, a turning point game for him where he can, where he can be a, be a focal point of the Jets secondary? We'll see. I mean, I mean, he's definitely made some, uh, it's been some errors there. I mean, I'm sure, you know, some plays that he would like to take back there as well. So, you know, I mean, it possibly could be, but yeah, he's definitely taken a lot of criticism from, you know, people on social media, Jets fans all around and, you know, even writers at times. But yeah, I mean, this is definitely his best game in a Jets uniform. And, you know, we'll just have to wait to see if he can, you know, build from that. But, yeah, it definitely uh, was huge for him to have the day that he did. And I'm going to jump over to the other side of the ball. I was very interested to see how Zach Wilson would connect with Garrett Wilson. As we've seen the last couple of games, Wilson's been getting more involved in the offense. Uh, Flacco was able to find him the ball in open space, got the winning touchdown against Cleveland, and we're, we're starting to see him become a bigger part. And today he had only two catches for 41 yards, including one that – that did set up, I, I believe it was the final score of the game, where he caught it like right around midfield and made a couple guys miss. Uh, what kind of chemistry have you seen between the two during practice, and where do you see that going forward? Well, we don't well, – honestly, this time of the year, we don't necessarily watch a lot of the practice other than them warming up. So, uh, yeah, they usually kick the media out after uh, they warm up. So, yeah, I mean, we asked Garrett Wilson about that and also Zach Wilson and yeah, they said that they're trying to, you know, make up for lost time throughout the, you know, the lost time they lost throughout training camp where Zach was hurt. So uh, I, that I can't necessarily answer, uh, but I can just tell you kind of what they said that they've been trying to work hard, trying to gain that chemistry down. And I, I and I, as we see like the rest of the roster, guys like Elijah Moore and Corey Davis are going to have roles here. Uh, Brees Hall, Michael Carter. There's a there's a lot of mouths to feed on this offensive unit, which I. I think it's a good problem to have when you have so many different people who can make an impact 
with the ball in their hands, I think that can only be a good thing for Zach Wilson going into his second season. I mean, yeah, it's never, you know, you look at the weapons, that they, the lack of weapons they had last year, and, you know, look at where they are now, where they have, I think they have a much more variety um, for Zach Wilson to throw to, and, you know, you have two running backs that I think you can kind of rely on. I, I don't think it's a bad problem to have. So, yeah, I definitely think it, it only it only get better from that. And, you know, to have a guy like, you know, not only Corey Davis and Elijah Moore, but to have a Garrett Wilson who can, you know, do a lot of different things there. And, you know, to go along with Braxton Berrios, who Zach Wilson feels comfortable with, you know, you add in the tight ends and you add in Brees Hall. Yeah, I definitely think it's uh, a much better setup than what he ended up having last year. We're talking with Antoine Staley. So next next week, uh, they're home for Miami. Good division test, one that I, I think they need to see where where they stand. If you're the Jets, do you prepare for Tua Tagovailoa or Teddy Bridgewater going into the going through the week? Well, you just prefer, prefer for both because I think that's the best way to go about it. But so you're not surprised really by anything. I imagine Teddy Bridgewater is going to play, but. You just, just to be on the safe side until he's ruled out, then you just keep preparing for for both of them. And I, after watching what happened with Tua on Thursday, and, and I, I hope he's I hope he's okay because that did not look good at all. What do you, do you think that the NFLPA made the right move firing the independent neurological doctor? Uh, I mean, I, I can't really speak on that. Like, I don't know. Like, it depends. You know what the what the findings were. So I think it's so early in the process that we don't necessarily know what the findings were. I, I mean, just to kind of look at it from the outside in, then you know maybe. But you know, I, I have to look and see. You know what they found that was an um, error or a mistake there on their part. But either way, you know, just speaking with people, like obviously, like I say, I have ties down there still. You know, covering the Dolphins all of those years and just talking with people. You know, reporters and people inside the organization. Some people just thought he shouldn't have played at all, especially considering, you know, it was four days after the fact that, you know, whether it was a, you know, back injury or a neck or whatever the case may be, it's such a short week and, you know, it's better to be safe but sorry. And, you know, you hate to see that happen to anybody, especially the way, you know, Tua had been playing at an MVP level early, I mean, early this season. So we'll have to wait and see if he, you know, whenever he gets cleared again, but, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, would like to see what they found that was really an error on their part before I answer that question. And I, I'm definitely with you. What it was very, very interesting to see Tua playing at the level he has. I, I'm a big proponent of left-handed quarterbacks as a left-handed person myself. Like, but like they, they don't, they don't get enough love in the NFL. So seeing Tua doing what he, he was doing this season was, was really incredible. And you know, two of the biggest beneficiaries of that. Being Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle, you know, rookie cornerback Sauce Gardner, he's going to have a very tough test on Sunday, having to guard either one or both of them at any point during the game. Do you think he's up for the task? Yeah, I mean, it's a definitely uh, the Dolphins have a ton of weapons. It's not just those two either. You, know, you got Cedric Wilson, you got Mike Gesicki there too as well. You got to worry about the Dolphins running running game too as well. So yeah. It's going to be a tough test for, you know, all hands got to be on deck for not just South Gardner, but the entire Jet secondary. I mean, he can only cover one receiver at a time, whether it be Tyreek Hill or Jalen Waddle. So it's going to have to be DJ Reed. It's going to have to be Michael Carter in uh, the second. It's going to have to be the safeties. Also, Jordan Whitehead. Also, Lamar Jordan coming off the game that he's had. So 
yeah, it's gonna that's, like I say, all hands got to be on deck, especially when you have the amount of speed that the Dolphins wide receivers have. And what, one of the one of the biggest things I've seen early on in the season, I know it's only been four games, but they're they're two and zero on the road, zero and two at home. This is a home a home game on Sunday. Yeah, the fans are going to be very into it a, after a win like today. What can the Jets do to overcome the home struggles they've had this season and of late? Well, really get off to a fast start. I mean, that's really basically what it boils down to. I mean, they really hadn't got off to a fast start, especially early on. And the games at home, I mean, they've only scored one offensive touchdown, too, as well. And that was late in the game with a minute left in the Ravens game. They were, you know, pretty much – they pretty much just had nothing but field goals against the Bengals. So, you know, just really getting off to a fast start, uh, not turning the ball over there, and, you know, also trying to be balanced, too. So, uh, that's kind of initially that's what I would be looking for, too, if you're, uh, you're the Jets, too. That way, you know, you can try to get off to a really fast start and keep the crowd engaged, too. Because um, I feel like the crowd was kind of lost, especially you know the two games that Flacco was playing at home, and you know that kind of led to some of the Mike White chance as well. Yeah, and I like, having like watching some of the Dolphins games this year, like they like they can they can fall behind, but they're kind of like Rocky where they they don't go they don't go away. They they keep coming back, and you know you you blink or you don't pay attention. They're they're knocking you down to the mat in the fourth quarter, as we saw in that Ravens game uh, two weeks ago. Where you know they they have the firepower and the ability to to come back from a twenty eight point deficit. Yeah, I, I definitely. Yeah, they're never out of the game, especially with the uh, weapons that they have. So that's why the, the Jets gonna have to really you know push them on the gas and you know try to score as many points as they had. They're probably gonna have to have uh, one of their better offensive outputs this season just to be able to you know beat a team as high powered as the Dolphins now. If two is not in there, which I imagine. You know, he won't be then. That kind of changes things the way they, you know, their offense is kind of run. I know Teddy Bridgewater is still a, you know, quality quarterback, but, you know, he's definitely, he definitely can't do some of the things that Tua does and a little bit more of a safer game manager type of deal. But, you know, definitely when you have those weapons on the outside, you know, they're able to be able to hit home runs at any time. I, I don't know if this is something that you're an expert in, but given the uncertainty of Who's going to be starting a quarterback? Where, where do you see the where do you see the line being initially for Sunday's oh, game? No, I, oh no, yeah, that is like way above my pre- yeah. I'm not. <laughs> I have no idea whatsoever uh, as far as betting odds. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to pretend like I know. All right, we're talking with Antoine. Say, I got just a couple more for you. Uh, one one of the things we've seen with the Jets over the last few years is they've really struggled. In division games, where you know, you know they're going one and five, zero oh and six in the division, if they they win on this coming Sunday against Miami. What does that say to the rest of the AFC East? Well, I mean, first of all, it says they're actually going to be competitive in the division, something that they have not done since 2019. I mean, they haven't won a divisional game since then, so I definitely think it'll be a good start. At, um, step in the right direction for that, but yeah, ultimately, I, I definitely think you know if they they were to beat the Dolphins, who you know currently are in first place in the division, maybe they you know make a statement to say, hey, you know, three and two after the first five games. I don't know if a lot of people thought that would have happened. I don't. I don't think. I don't think I thought that was going to happen. I thought you know two and three might be more likely, which I thought would be you know wouldn't be a bad start for them. But three and two, I definitely like. 
yeah, would they got a chance to, you know, maybe, you know, contend for a wild card spot or, you know, maybe the division. But we'll see. I think we're a long way from that. But, yeah, you just want to be able to get those divisional wins and, you know, show the Dolphins and uh, later on the Bills and the Patriots that you can hang with all of those teams in the division. And I think for a lot of people this year was the year that, you know, maybe not playoffs, but just be able to step up to those teams and show that they're not gonna, not gonna roll over and they're not gonna lay down. I think we're, I think we're seeing that initially as, you know, a game like, a game like today, last year, two years ago, the Jets, the Jets lose that game. They, they don't, they don't come back from that game, I don't think. But, to, but today, where I think we're seeing something a little different, where they're, they are able to reach back and find that extra little bit. Yeah, I definitely think, I mean, even though they're still a young team, I definitely think they just kind of have, and I spoke to some of the players after the game, I mean, they really have this belief that they're never out of the game. They have this confidence that, you know, no matter what, they're able to overcome that. They, we saw it against the Browns a few weeks ago. They were able to overcome that and get the victory. We saw it today against the Steelers, able to overcome and get the victory there. You know, they believe that, you know, maybe this will catapult them into something that, you know, could be greater down the line. We'll have to wait and see. But, yeah, I definitely think uh, this is definitely a much improved team. I thought coming into the year they would be. And I picked them to win seven games. I, you know, after what I've seen the first four weeks of the season, I kind of stick stay to that. You know, maybe they could, you know, potentially surprise and, you know, win eight, you know, maybe a little bit more. But, you know, I definitely feel confident that this team is heading in the right direction. We're talking with Antoine. So I just got one more for you. Uh, before you came, before you came to New York, you were covering the Oregon Ducks for quite a while. Uh, so what, like, what are you? Uh, a year. Uh, yeah, I was just covering it for a year. I, yeah. I, 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 actually, I thought it was a lot longer. I, oh, I, no. I, 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 I remember seeing all the articles. I thought, I, I thought it was like three years, three, four years you were doing it. But what, like, what are your thoughts on the, <laughs> on the Pac-12 this year? Uh, what, like, where do you, where do you see them falling as the season goes? Well, I mean, it's just going to depend on, like, what USC does. I mean, they're saying, like, they're, they're probably their only hope for getting into the college football playoff. Maybe, you know, Utah could squeak in there. You know, they end up winning out and beating it, you know, tough USC team possibly twice. But yeah, I mean, I think those Utah and, you know, USC are probably the top two teams right there. Oregon is showing that, you know, despite their embarrassing loss to Georgia that, you know, they might be able to recover and possibly win 10 games also in the conference too. But, you know, I definitely think, you know, as of, as it is stand right now, I think, you know, USC and Oregon, uh, I mean, USC and Utah, excuse me, or the cream of the crop in that game again. And on the 15th is definitely going to be very interesting to watch. And here I am just hoping that Arizona State beats Arizona in November. <laughs> uh, the Territorial Cup, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's my, my, my favorite game of the year, personally. It, yeah, I mean, that's always a good robbery. So, yeah, they, I mean, I, I'm curious to see who they're going to hire as, as head coach there because I always feel like Arizona State could be a, you know, a program that should be better than what they are. I 100% agree with you, and I'm silently holding out hope that the Panthers fire Matt Rule because I would, I would love him on the sidelines in Tempe. Well, that's, I think he's going to have, you know, depending on what happens with the Panthers situation, which is not looking good, uh, Although David Tepper would still have to fire him. I mean, that's my neck of the woods in Carolina, and I covered the Panthers for years. I mean, a lot of people want him definitely gone. Uh, but, you know, what makes it complicated is he still has uh, four more years left on his contract after this year. So 
that David Tepper want to just eat that and also pay somebody else to coach the team at the same time? Or does he want to just give Matt Rule possibly one more year to try to try to get it right? But, yeah, the wheels are definitely coming off the tracks pretty quickly in Carolina. Well, Antoine, thank you for taking the time tonight and uh, looking forward to seeing what, what you got the rest of the season. All right, sounds good. Thank you. That was Antoine Staley from the New York Daily News. You can follow him on Twitter at Antoine V. Staley. Uh, so, what, like you said, you know, big, big win for the team. We'll have to see where, where they go with this. It, this is, this could be a launching point for them. Like they, they have that, they have their game against Miami next week. And that, that could be the one where they say, okay, we're, like, we're taking this next step. We're beating Miami. We're sitting over 500 for the first time in forever. We're, like, we're here. We're ready to compete. And I think that that's what all Jet fans want. We we want to see our team be competitive every week. We didn't really see that last week. Uh, this the game wasn't as close as the score indicated. Today we saw it. They they looked they looked markedly better today, and they improved as the game went on, especially in the fourth quarter. I I expected two and two after these first four games, and I'm really glad that they got there because if they would have gone into their first divisional game at one and three, that that would have put on put a very different would have put a very different feel on how next Sunday's game would have gone. They would have lost Zach Wilson's first game, and there would be that sense of unease of what's about to happen. Now that now there's some there's some confidence, there's some optimism. They they pulled off, they pulled off a fourth quarter comeback. They they improved as the game went on. We saw Wilson start making some better throws. There were still some that made you scratch your head a little bit, like the the one around, I like the ten yard line that he just completely missed. Brees Hall, that I it, it came back for an illegal shift or an illegal formation, but like that's a throw that needs to be made. He was wide open, and again, even if even if it was coming back, it's still one of those. Those are one of those. Plays that you you want to see made consistently because that's a, that's a play a quarterback needs to make in his sleep. But if we can see him improve on that next week and make that play, and we see Hall or Carter go for five ten yards, that's gonna that's gonna be something that we look at. It's like okay, he fixed that. That's good. We want to see Quentin Williams have more games where he gets some sacks and makes plays, so that way he gets into those rotations that we all want to see him in. So I, I'm very satisfied with today's win. I'm very excited to see what they do next week in Miami or against Miami. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk some hockey with Sherry Ross. You're listening to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB 1240 AM. We'll be right back. To Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. 
Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. And we're back for the second half of hour two of Sports Talk New York here on WGBB 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. I'm Andy Sukov, and before we start the second half of our show, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out my man behind the glass, Brian Graves. Brian, how we doing? We got the two thumbs up from Brian, so we are good to go. Like I said at the top of the yeah, at the top of the show, uh, joining me for the second half here is former Devils broadcaster Sherry Ross. Sherry, thank you for taking the time tonight. Oh, hi, Andy. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, you know, we're we're right right around the time of hockey season, and this as someone who grew up around hockey, like I I love the I love this time of year, and I I have to imagine you feel the same way. Well, absolutely, because number one, nobody's lost a game yet, at least a game that counts, and you're looking at all of the pieces of the puzzle to uh, to move into the season, and it, it's it's always been just a, a great time of year. So we're going to jump right into it. Like you, you grew up in Jersey in the in the '60s and '70s. What what attracted you to hockey? It was a very weird thing. I was babysitting one night, and I was always interested in the sports. My whole family's into sports, but nobody was into hockey. Uh, and at the time, the, the Rangers uh, were the only local team, and they were playing on, I think, a Saturday night, and they used to be carried on Channel 9 on, on the Saturday night games. And I just started watching, and I fell in love with Rod Gilbert, who I was lucky enough to meet many years later. And I'm like, where's this sport been all my life? I got totally into it, uh, started going with my friends to some Ranger games at the Garden, and uh, was hooked from there on in. So it probably would have been... Oh my gosh, I'm trying to figure what years it would have been. It probably would have been like late 60s, early 70s when I, when I got hooked. And it, uh, I haven't gotten over the addiction. <laughs> so besides Roger Bear, who were some of the, some of your favorite players growing up watching? Well, I mean, I was a Rangers fan, which I hate to admit now, but you have to remember the Devils didn't come along till 1982. So, uh, don't, don't worry, don't worry. I, I, I won't, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> It was, it was Rangers or nothing. Actually, the, the Islanders came along in 72, but they seemed very remote back in those days because you didn't have all the streaming options and, all, you know, the cable networks and stuff. So they, they were kind of a team we didn't get to see very much. But, yeah, grew up very much a Rangers fan. Of course, Eddie Jockelman, you know, the Brad Park, Vic Hatfield, Jean Rattel, that whole era was, was was exciting for me. And then, you, you, you know, the other teams, of course, you would see Aguila LaFleur and Patrick Waugh, and it, it was just, one one game after another, I just totally fell in love with the sport and uh, the people who play it. So, one one of your first jobs with the Daily Record in Morristown. Were, were you covering the Rangers Islanders for them, or was it more like, like high school hockey, college hockey? No, I, it was a combination of high school and I would do the Rangers home games for the most part until the uh, the Devils came along in '82, and then I moved to the Bergen Record and uh, became their beat writer for the Devils. So I, I pretty much had an education on all three teams. I worked at Newsday briefly, so I covered the Islanders uh, post-Dynasty, although I did get to cover uh, their Stanley Cup runs. So I was around a lot of great players and a lot of great coaches and a lot of wonderful experiences uh, for all three teams in this area. So we're talking with Sherry Ross. When, when the Devils moved from Colorado to New Jersey, what was the – what was the thought going around New Jersey, like that they were that they were getting their pro team in the NHL? Well, it was kind of a mixed emotions because you know the new arena went up and every 
rumor, and this is before Twitter, I think if Twitter had been around, it would have been even crazier, was that the Rangers were actually going to move from the Garden to the Meadowlands, which, of course, never happened. I don't think it was ever really in the books, although the Rangers may have been threatening that to try to get some more deals from the city or something. You never know what's going on behind closed doors. Uh, so that was really the first you know, the first uh, emotion was, oh, we're getting the Rangers. And then it was, wait a minute, we're getting a really bad expansion team from a couple of years ago that failed in Kansas City and then failed in Colorado. Uh, so I think a lot of the early sign-ups for season tickets were people anticipating the Rangers coming in. But it was still for New Jersey to have a team that wasn't afraid to call itself a New Jersey team. For those of us who are true Jerseyans, that, that really meant something. And for me, because it became my first full-time beat, it was really exciting because you came in with a team that was a mix of uh, young guys and older players like Chico Rush and Mel Bridgman, and it was just uh, it was just kind of a, a growth thing to to get to see this team and to see it build a new fan base here in New Jersey. And you you joined the the broadcast booth in the early nineties. You got you got to be there for the Cup run in ninety five and got to see that core of the team. You know, really blend together, grow together, guys like Brodeur and Bobby Holik, Scott Stevens, Scott Niedermeyer. When you saw that that core coming together, were, were you sent, did you sense something was brewing and something special was going to happen with, with that group of people? Yeah, you especially have to go back to the 94 playoffs, which nobody who's a Devils fan likes to do, but you'll hear a lot of great athletes say they win a lot, they, they learn a lot, maybe learn even more from losing than they do from winning, and I think... That loss to the Rangers in the semifinals the year before really showed them what they had to do in order to achieve a championship, and they took it into that next season, which, by the way, was only a half season because of the, I forget if it was a lockout or a strike, one or the other, I think it was a lockout. Um, so they only played half a year before going into that year's playoffs. It was not a lot of time to gel, but they certainly came together quickly, and they had a tremendous coach in Jacques Lemaire who just hit all the right combinations he had the crash line that, that did its own thing and was a was an identity within the team. And uh, so that playoff run, I think, can partially be attributed to the loss the season before and attributed to how quickly things came together. And we're talking with Sherry Ross. Uh, they 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 go through they win the three cups over ten years with that with that core largely intact. Martin Brodeur, arguably the greatest goaltender in the history of the sport. You re, you. One of the things that you did, you for 15 years, you did the hockey scouting report, which basically was basically like the hockey reference before hockey reference was a thing. Uh, what like what work would go into would go into that to get the extensive scouting reports on everybody around the league? Well, that was a, that was a year round labor, and <laughs> it took me well into the into the summer as well. So it it, uh, it a lot of it was my own scouting, watching games. You know, I had the NHL centerized package. I would tape games back in the days when we actually used tape and, uh, you know, go over games from teams I didn't get to see that much. And then I built a network of scouts and general managers and players who I could contact and who would help me with players maybe I didn't have a lot of information on uh, looking ahead. Because uh, the, the big thing about it was projection, projecting what these players would turn into it actually turned into a resource book, and I didn't realize it at the time, but for fantasy uh, hockey pool uh, participants, they really enjoyed getting the book because they were, just, they were basing their teams on a lot of the projections that came from the book. And I had so many tremendous 
guys who who helped me out at the start who be, who were scouts and then got involved in the upper team management. So it was a learning experience for me as well to realize what these gentlemen and it was the time it was all men uh were looking for in players and what their assessments were and then my own uh observances from games that I saw either in person or would uh, would break down on tape. So it it sounded like you were like going very like into the analytics field well before we saw that kind of hit the mainstream where we see that a lot in baseball now where analytics are kind of taking over everything. You see that, you see that in hockey to an extent. It seems like you were well ahead of the curve on that. I don't know if I would say that because I really didn't have a, a formula. I didn't have anything scientific, any numbers. It was more a case of I had certain aspects I was looking for in a player, but I think there were also a lot of intangibles that I used, which don't come into play in analytics. It would be, uh, you know, what, when a coach would use certain players in certain situations in the last two minutes of a game, if they were trailing or leading. Uh, so it was a lot of what I saw uh, from the personalities of the players, as well as whatever things you could really quantify in terms of uh, their abilities. We're talking with Sherry Ross. And you, you rejoined the Devils booth in 2007. The Devils are still near the top of the league. Martin Brodeur still kind of chugging along, but... The, the core of those championship teams are gone. You still have Patrick Elias around. What, what was, what was different when you, when you rejoined the booth between, after being there for the 94, 95 runs and then coming back in 2007? Well, of course it was disappointing that the team never achieved the, the kind of runs that they had before. You know, 2012, they did go to the finals. Um, but it was, it was a question of, you have to sort of go back and see what you pay to win a Stanley Cup. And in some cases, you trade draft picks in order to get a key player to help you down the stretch. And those things chip away at your team later on. That's, that's why we don't have dynasties that last very long. I mean, now a dynasty is if you can win three cups in a row or, or four in seven years, teams don't really stay at their height that long. And I think that's, I think that's true of all sports. You, you make certain sacrifices to get to the top, and the debt comes due later. So the Devils are, are were in that mode for a long time. I think they're still in it. I would have to like pull out all the reports and see exactly what draft picks went where and what trades went went where. But it, it's a long process to get back to that position. And I think the Devils are right now on the verge of seeing which way it's going to go. If it's going to be another long wait to be competitive, or if, or if they've turned the corner and it's going to happen in the next one or two years. Well, let, let's jump to the current team. I, I I'm actually. I'm actually pretty bullish on them this year. I think I think they're ready to I think they're ready to make that jump. Guys like you know with Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes, another year older, get more familiar with the league. Uh, Bringing guys like Andre Palat and Vitek Vanacek to especially Vanacek to steady the goaltending that's been a bit of an issue for the last couple of years. What what do you think they have to do to make that jump in a metropolitan division that is insanely difficult with so many top teams? perch at the top it's kind of hard to say I, I thought last year's team was going to be uh the word i use is relevant i think the next step for the devils is to be relevant and by that i mean to not be out of the playoffs by christmas you know i, I think this team is capable as it's built now and everybody stays healthy i think it's capable of hanging around that eighth playoff spot and, and i think that's the next Step this team has to take. They need to be in the battle for a playoff spot and maybe get it if everything falls right. And by that I mean they don't need to use seven goaltenders. 
you know, things like that. Everything that went wrong, that could have gone wrong, went wrong last year. Jack Hughes played fewer than 50 games. Dougie Hamilton got hurt. Uh, Mackenzie Blackwood, you know, it was just one thing after another. I think if they get consistent goaltending, and Vanacek is a key part of that, and Blackwood has looked so good so far in preseason. If they can just get competent goaltending, it doesn't have to be Vesna Trophy winning uh, goaltending. I think that's going to be the building block for what comes next. After that, I would like to see this team build more of an identity. Right now, I don't know what you would call this team. I don't know how you would describe them. So I'm eager to see what they look like when the whole team is put together rather than seeing half the team in one preseason game and half in another and to see how all the chemistry is going to work out with some of the new players. And Palat, I think, was a, which was a tremendous uh, acquisition in the offseason. I, I agree with that. I, I mean, we, we watched Palat with Tampa for all those years, and it, it was just like it was a matter of when was he going to beat your team, not – it wasn't if it was when he was going to do, and we saw that especially in the playoffs. He's got he's got that pedigree that I I think the Devils could use with, a, with that strong veteran presence to help get them over the edge. Yeah, he's a different kind of player, but in a way, he reminds me of Claude Lemieux because Lemieux, when he played for the Devils, was always triple his value when the playoffs started. He was just that kind of competitor, and I get that feeling from Palat that when they get into the postseason. This is absolutely going to be the guy that gets you through some of those games that you think maybe they've got no chance of winning. He just is a different kind of animal, a different kind of person. I think Jack Hughes is going to learn a lot from him. They've been playing on the same line so far in the preseason, and and that's going to add a lot to uh, Jack Hughes' education to see that kind of player and the kind of things he does to win games. We're talking with Sherry Ross. And, you know, Lindy Ruff back for another season as the Devils head coach. What – What's he? What's he bringing to the table this year for the for this team that is, I believe, on the up and up? Well, I'm not around the team the way I was when I worked for them or when I was a reporter, so it's kind of hard for me to judge. Uh, but I will say that when um, Jack Hughes came out right after the season last year, and and really, you know, stood tall and said, like this, I I believe in this coach. He's done a lot for me. He's shown a lot of trust in me, and I think that went a long way to uh, to not making any moves in the coaching ranks during the off season, It's also tough to judge him due to what went on with the team last season with the injuries and such. So I think a strong start is really important, not only for the team, but important for Lindy Ruff. And one of the, one of the big moments in your career uh, in the booth, November 2009, Devils Senators, uh, you got to do play-by-play, and I was and as the first woman to do English play-by-play for an NHL game, that 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 is a huge, huge moment in your career and for and for women looking to get into the into the sports world. What like what does that moment mean for you? It means a lot because now women, more women are doing it. So I mean, I think that's fantastic. Uh, I remember it being absolutely terrifying. Unfortunately, I had been given like a little bit of a heads up that it was coming, so I was sort of able to prepare myself for uh, everything that's involved, but it's really hard. <laughs> I respect anybody that does it, uh, but it's also great just so being on top of the game. I felt like the game lasted 10 minutes. It just went by so fast. It's really difficult to do. Uh, I hope more women get into it. I think it's it's hard to do well, and I, I, I enjoyed the experience, and I was really, uh, you know, 
I was excited, honestly, to be able to, to be the first to do it. And, and I hope I did a decent enough job that I didn't discourage anybody else from trying it. Uh, and we, and like you said, we, we are seeing more women in the broadcasting right now. Women like AJ Malesko, Catherine Tappan, Shannon Hogan. We're, we're seeing, we're seeing, we're seeing these women and very talented women get these opportunities. And I, I, I think that's great that they, that, that they're able to do this at the top level and be, and be just as good as any, as any male broadcaster. And I think with, uh, you know, with the, with the women's, uh, hockey teams, uh, especially in the Olympics and in the world championships, getting those opportunities to, to be on, on a world showcase and that people are familiar with them. And now you've got a pool of women who are very articulate, who know the game inside and out, and they're getting the chances to, to do these games. I think Males- AJ Malesko does a fantastic job. And it's not just sideline reporting, and I'm not disparaging the the rinkside reporting. I think I I could never do that. That's that's another whole other talent level to do that. But the fact that women are getting into the analysis departments is and play by play, and now you're seeing them in hockey management as well. I think that's all very exciting. We're talking with Sherry Ross. Uh, we're gonna jump away from the hockey first for a minute. One one of the things as I was kind of as I was going through my show prep. Uh, one of the things that caught my eye on your Twitter feed was cat mom of seven. I, I, yep. I, 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 like, I, I'm a dog person, so like, I, I can never, like, I can never imagine having seven dogs. How, how does, how does, how does the house work with seven cats? Fortunately, it's a big house. So I have a cat on my lap right now, as a matter of fact. Um, I never intended to have this many cats. It was not, an, it was not an objective. But uh, it's like any addiction. You start with one, and then, you know, more of it happens. But the, the big issue for me was getting into rescue, which I had not done before when I was working because there just wasn't time for it, and I was traveling so much. Um, but a few years ago, I found a, a blind feral kitten and uh, rescued her. And then my neighbor saw me rescuing her and said, if you get her brother because he's blind too, I'll take him in. And I was off and running after that. I have a three-legged cat. I have a I have my still have my blind cat. I have a cat that a neighbor left behind when they were, were about to move. They just sort of kicked him out of the house. So I take in all the unwanted, <laughs> all all the rejects. They all live here. And then in addition to that, I am still involved with rescue, so I foster. So I have my seven in the house right now. I have one foster cat in addition and another foster showing up tomorrow. So it just never ends. I just, uh, I just, feel it's something that I have the ability to do, and every time one of these babies gets a new home, I'm very excited. How do, how do all the cats coexist with each other? Uh, we occasionally have spats. It's like any family. <laughs> they all have different personalities, and so I just learned to, uh, if I'm going to be out of the house a long time some, and everybody's acting kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of iffy, I'll put one in a bedroom, you know, just to cool off for a while. I guess it's, I never had kids, but I guess it's like having kids. You just say, go have a time out, go, go take a nap, see how you feel, and then we'll move on from there. But it's, uh, it, it's very rewarding to, to make sure that all of these cats get good homes. And of course, mine, I just, uh, I just adore them. That's all there is to it. And uh, one of the other, one of the things I saw, uh, you're involved with, a, with a cat rescue in West Orange, you know, Rescuing feral cats, getting them vaccinated mm-hmm. and neutered. How did you How did you get involved with that? Well, it actually came from the one um, when I was. I don't live in West Orange anymore, but I still I still work with them. Um, 
uh, there's a pregnant cat in our townhouse complex, and she had babies like every four months. And I'm like, this is not, this has got to stop. So she was the mother of the blind kittens, and I was able to, uh, to humanely trap her uh, when she was pregnant again. So she had six kittens that time. I kept one. Five went to, to new homes, and I was able to get her neutered, and that's uh, spayed rather, and that's how I found out about this this whole world of trap neuter release, which is you, you take in the ferals, you get them fixed, you get them vaccinated, uh, treated if they have any injuries, and then if they're not adoptable, you release them into their colony, which is what they call and usually the groups of cats live together. You make sure there's somebody that has, that's there to take care of them and provide shelter for them. And if they have kittens or if they're friendlies, excuse me, if they're friendly adults, then uh, then you work really hard to find uh, adoptive homes for them. And we've been doing that for six years now, I think. And we have fixed over 1,000 feral cats. And in addition to that, we've found homes for, I think it's around 400 cats and kittens. So we've taken them out of out of the uh, the population and hopefully done some good to to reduce the uh the horrible deaths that they suffer. Uh, that that's really honorable work. Uh, how how can others get involved and help you guys out? Well, uh, unfortunately, there's no like national you know network for this. So you can find uh, go online. I would search in your area to find out if there's. It's, it's usually volunteer groups. In some cases, there are bigger organizations that that may that may do it. Some towns actually have uh, spay neuter programs, which are really important. And spay and neuter your own cat. Keep it inside. Now, that's the best thing you can do. Keep your own pet safe and to prevent overpopulation. And then, and then learn more about TNR. I mean, I wasn't born knowing how to humanely trap and care for cats, but I had to learn about it. There are many organizations. You can, uh, Alley Cat Allies is one online resource that people can look at and learn about, uh, learn about how to do the rescues and uh, how to care for the cats. And, uh, you know, it, it, you do a lot of good. And, it's been a big part of my life for several years now, and I'm, and I'm really happy to do it. Do, do you work with other animals as well, or or just cats? No, we just do cats. I mean, I'm really a horse person. <laughs> I've had horses most of my life. I don't now, but it's really hard to foster horses in your house. So I, 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 I had to resort I to cats. <laughs> I had to resort to cats, but, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly am involved with the humane treatment of all animals. I, I think that's really essential. Uh, I'm a vegetarian for the most part. I still I still eat chicken and turkey, but I really like to become full on vegetarian. But I just think even if you do eat meat, that you get involved in making sure all the animals are humanely treated in in whatever facility they're uh, being taken care of. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I, I really do appreciate it. Oh, I, it's a pleasure, Andy, and thank you so much for asking me. Of course, that was Sherry Ross, a long time broadcaster here in the New York area. And like she said, we're, we're women in sports. We're seeing we're seeing that more now, which I I think is a great thing. And especially here in New York, where we had we had Sherry, we have Susan Waldman. We we we've had a long-standing presence of women in the professional ranks in in this city. And I I am seeing that now on a national stage, where. People, where women like AJ, like I said, AJ Malesko and Catherine Tappan are are in those big spots to be broadcasting for millions of people. I I think is is great, and I believe we should see more, and I I hope we do. So we got we got about five minutes left here 
on the show tonight. Uh, look, gonna give you a quick score update from both Atlanta and Tampa. So let, let's start with the Mets as it's now the bottom of the seventh. The Braves currently leading five to three over the Mets. The, this game could conceivably decide the division. The Mets and Braves are tied in their games against each other. Whoever wins this wins the series, which would be the tiebreaker if they finish tied for the division lead at the end of the season. There, there is no game 163, which I, I kind of like that. I always like the idea of, of game 163 is it, like, while, while tiebreakers are fine, you kind of want to see them go at each other one last time for, for everything. Sometimes you don't get that. And now we're no longer going to have that as we now have the expanded playoffs where it's going to be six teams. You have the two wild card series best out of three, which I, I think is fantastic. The, the one game series just never did it for me. Game baseball is decided in series. And I, I always said that the playoffs should be, should be that as well. That one game playoff should have been a three game series. And I'm glad to see MLB is rectifying that. And unfortunately for the Mets, they're, they had their top three starters go this series in Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer, and Chris Bassett, and all three of them did not get the job done. And they're not hitting either, so that doesn't really help. But when you have guys like DeGrom and Scherzer, who are arguably the two best pitchers in the game of baseball right now, those are the guys you need to step up here in October. And this is just the regular season. You need them to do that in the playoffs, too. And we, we've seen them do it. Scherzer's got a World Series. DeGrom's pitched in the World Series and pitched, pitched pretty well in that playoff run. We need to see them do that going forward. And you can't be coming up small against a team like the Atlanta Braves, who you might face again in the playoffs. You can't do that against the Dodgers, who, who will, who will walk all over you if you play like that. And then looking over in Tampa, the Kansas City Chiefs are taking it to the Bucks. With just about just about at halftime, the Chiefs have a 28-17 lead as Patrick Mahomes having a very nice day to start the game, coming up with two passing touchdowns, three three rushing touchdowns for 23 yards. So he's he's having a nice start to his day. Like if he can if he can get himself to 300 passing yards and another couple touchdowns, anybody who has him in fantasy football is going to be very happy because that he'll, that'll be a nice 30 point day for you. And and who doesn't want a thirty point day from your quarterback? I mean, I I, I know I haven't gotten one of those in a while because I don't have Lamar Jackson. And anybody who has Lamar Jackson knows you want you just want him to run all over the field and just dominate. Or if you have a guy like Jalen Hurts, who the first couple weeks look looked like looked like a god on the field, is the somehow the Philadelphia Eagles are sitting a four and zero. I I still have no idea how that happened. I figured they would make a bit of a jump this year, but I didn't think it was going to be. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna start the season four and zero and look like world beaters. And I I will also admit I didn't think much of the NFC East this year. And to see three of the four teams sitting at three and one or better is very impressive. What what I what I see in the NFC East is kind of what I imagined was going to be the AFC West. And we got like the complete opposite. Like I thought the Chargers were gonna be very good this year and they're sitting at two and two. I thought the Raiders were gonna be good this year and they're sitting at one and three. I 
I thought the Broncos were going to be very good bringing in Russell Wilson, and they've just they've looked very mediocre. I'm curious to see if they can turn it around. I, I I know it's only four games, and you don't want to look too far into it, but you're now talking about 25% of the season. Next thing you know, it's going to be Thanksgiving, and we're get, we're going to be at the end of the season. Everybody's going to be scrambling for the playoffs. And that's going to do it for me tonight. I want to thank Antoine Staley. I want to thank Sherry Ross. I want to thank all of you for listening. And, of course, got to thank my man Brian behind the glass, putting us all up on the air. I'm done for the night. You'll see me again soon. You'll hear from me soon. Follow me on Twitter at Andy underscore Sukov. If you want any, any fun sports takes, they're there. You guys enjoy the rest of your night. Expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.